Hi, I'm James Gardner, host of Your History, Your Story, a podcast for everybody who loves stories about interesting people and events told by those who uncovered them from within their own family trees. This, we hope, will inspire you to discover and celebrate your history and your story. December 7th, 1941 and September 11th, 2001 are two dates that will live in infamy. Although 60 years apart, they both represent defining moments in United States history. Our guests in this episode, Dorinda Nicholson and Lieutenant Colonel Robert Darling, U.S. Marine Corps retired, were eyewitnesses, respectively, to the bombing of Pearl Harbor and the response of America's leadership from within the White House bunker to the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Dorinda Nicholson was born in Hawaii to a Hawaiian mother and a Caucasian father from Missouri. On December 7, 1941, Dorinda, whose family lived near the tip of the Pearl City Peninsula, was six years old when she witnessed the bombing of Pearl Harbor by Imperial Japan. Her home was only a few hundred yards from the USS Utah, the first ship to be attacked on that fateful day. After fleeing their home to take refuge in a sugarcane field, she and her family had a panoramic view of the attacks on the entire American fleet. Dorinda, who went on to become a mental health professional, is also a sought-after speaker and author of books such as Pearl Harbor Child and Pearl Harbor Warriors. One of Dorinda's passions is to bring awareness to the suffering of civilian populations, particularly children, during times of war. As an officer in the U.S. Marine Corps, Robert Darling was a pilot of Cobra attack helicopters during Desert Shield and Desert Storm during the First Gulf War and in Somalia, Africa, in support of Operation Restore Hope. He was later selected to fly as a presidential pilot with Marine Helicopter Squadron 1 and in the year 2000 was chosen to work for the White House Military Office Airlift Operations Department. While serving in that capacity on 9-11-2001, during the terrorist attacks on America, Darling, who was then a major, responded to the underground White House bunker known as the President's Emergency Operations Center. From that location, he directly supported the Vice President and the National Security Advisor during the critical moments of that day. Lieutenant Colonel Robert Darling retired from the U.S. Marine Corps in 2007 after 20 years of service. He is now a professional speaker in crisis leadership and decision-making and is the author of 24 Hours Inside the President's Bunker, 9-1101, The White House. In this episode of Your History, Your Story, Dorinda and Robert will recount their experiences of those two historic days in American history and how those events have impacted their lives. They will also share their thoughts on what we, as a country, can learn about leadership in crisis, war, and its impact on human lives. I'd now like to welcome Dorinda and Bob to our show. Welcome, guys. Aloha. Great to be with you, James. Thank you very much. And and great to be with you, Dorinda, again. It's been way too long, so I'm glad that we at least get to meet again by voice. I'm honored to be here speaking with both of you because uh, you know we're going to be talking about the two most devastating attacks on U.S. soil 
by foreign enemies in United States history. So this is a very important discussion I think we're going to have. So thank you again for both being here. I'm going to start with Dorinda. Now, we're going to hear a story about what happened to you when you were six years old, but I want to back up and I want to ask you to tell us about you know, your family background and just about yourself. Okay. My given name is Dorinda, and the middle name that my mother and father chose for me, my mother's Hawaiian, my father is Army Soldier Boy from Missouri, and the name they gave me was Makana Onalani, and Makana means gift, and it's of the heavens. So that's quite a name to have to, to live up to. Oh, yeah, it's a beautiful And name. grew up in the middle of Pearl Harbor. My mother worked for Pan American World Airways, and at that time, if you were flying to Hawaii, now most visitors came by a cruise ship five days from California, and if you wanted to fly, uh, you came on Pan American. These are sea clippers that would land then not out in the ocean where it's it's too rough. I mean, there was no uh, dock for you to tie up to, but the peaceful, calm waters of Pearl Harbor. And there are several locks. There's East Lock, West Lock, and Middle Lock uh, in this huge, uh, very uh, calm, not very deep, waters of the harbor and so Pan Am was actually there first and um, built their international base. Mom got a job there and so she could walk to work and I was unusual for that time. I, I've always had a, a working mom and little did we know when we moved there in the spring of 1941 that December the 7th of that same year, we would have a front row, ground zero uh, seat to the bombing of Pearl Harbor by the Empire of Japan, which, oh gosh, affects so many things. Um, hard to even count all the after effects of that. But as a child, I'm six years old. And we were eating breakfast. Uh, church starts at 9, so 7.30, of course. Mom's in the kitchen, and I'm with her. And we start to hear airplanes flying over. Not unusual if you could see where we lived, but on a Sunday morning. And my dad would say the same thing that thousands of others said that morning. Wonder why the military are practicing. They don't practice on Sunday mornings. And I'll just kind of fast forward through that uh, hearing the airplanes. We still didn't go outdoors until we felt the explosions and our table shaking. And that's when dad and I ran out into the front yard. And the planes, you know, at six years old, I'm knowing, not knowing what a red circle on an airplane means. I'm not knowing that that is a torpedo bomber 
which comes in at a lower altitude than the mid-range or the higher level bombers. Of course, I know that now. And what I was seeing then were the torpedo bombers. They're on their final descent and they have canopies over their head pushed back. They're leaning out to look at their targets. And that's why dad and I could see their faces uh, and we could see the goggles that they were, were wearing. Dad grabs me, takes me in the house, gets my baby brother out of his crib, he was two, and mom, and we don't take anything with us and puts us in our 1939 two-door black car, and we took off. And by that time, there were military trucks coming down the streets telling us to get off the road, and men were hanging out pulling on pants and shirts. And we went as far as the road out of the peninsula would go up into the mountains. And when that road ended in the mountains, there were sugarcane fields, and that's where we stayed. The bombing lasted for two hours. They came in in waves. There was the first wave, and then there was the second wave, and as history, you know, tells us there was supposed to have been a third wave. Oh, thank goodness there wasn't because that's when they were going to blow up the oil tanks. And I don't know what would have happened to the civilians and everything else in the area. I don't know what could have survived. And plus, that would have left Hawaii with absolutely no fuel mm. for the rest of the war. So the noise... As, of course, we're getting further away, now up in the sugarcane fields, we have a panorama view because we're up and over and oily, oily black smoke with uh, flashes of red. And I don't know at the time that, you know, there are men floating dead in the water and uh, men trying to to shoot back as as best as they can. Boy, I, I tell you, I think as a six year old, that must have been terrifying. Um, I got an assignment because of my story as an American child going through this. I got an assignment from National Geographic to write the stories of kids who survived. World War II from around the world. And this is what I learned. If you are younger than six, which my brother was, he slept through almost all of it. He was the one that ended up with the nightmares. Really? Because he had no language. And so he couldn't ask. He could just absorb feelings. When you're from six to 12, if there is such a thing as if you're going to have a world war B6 to 12, because mom and dad and baby brother were with me, the people, the three people that I love the most in the world, and I can keep asking questions and I can keep my eye on them. Mm. And they handled themselves very well. If you're 12 and older, which Gosh, my interviewee in Tokyo was 12. 
uh, my interviewee at Auschwitz was a teenager. They knew what was happening. So at my age, as long as I could keep, you know, mom and dad in sight, I was doing well. Again, no matter what age you are, it really helps if you have uh, a caretaker, a support person, someone that is important to you uh, in your life. Right. Dorinda, so you're up in the sugar fields with your family. What happened next? So it starts to get towards later in the day. Uh, We've already, you know, dad's already twisted the radio dial and the neighbors now are all joining us. They're trying to get away from the bombing. And so trying to get the information and there's a radio announcer we're all familiar with that tells us, you know, stay off the phone, stay in your house. And basically, if you're military, get to your bases. If you are medical, get to the nurse hospital. Mm-hmm. And then they put, and we, we still don't even know where, how many, the hugest, hugest difference, of course, between an event 80 years ago and an event today is the speed of processing information. And so you have no information. I want to go home and I figure we're going home. And about then, um, we already have heard from our governor after the radio announcer, then the governor comes on who has Uh, spoken with President Roosevelt, and we are now immediately under martial law. Blackouts will start that night. The military are in charge. It's not officer-friendly, and and I think, well, we'll go home and do our blackouts there. But because of where we were, we could not go home. I mean, we were at ground zero. There are bullets and bombs and It's unsafe. The area has to be cleared. So the military comes in and says that uh, the sugar plantation town that adjoins us, Waipahu, has prepared their community center and they will care for us. Mm. So I said, well, can't I go home first and get my dog? And the answer, of course, was no. So that was my worry, and we were separated for quite a few days, and blackouts start immediately that night. Was there a general fear that there might be an invasion? I'm always asked, weren't you scared? I wasn't scared until we're sitting in the dark, and in the distance, Waipahu is up, kind of rolls uphill onto a plane, And so you can see the fires from Pearl Harbor and people are starting to do the rumors. And the first rumor is, you know, I bet they're parachuting right now and our water is being poisoned. And when we wake up, uh, we'll be surrounded by soldiers with guns. And that's then the fear, you know, just ripples through. And then this happens. And talk about then we were so sure that we were correct, that the Japanese had come back. 
And it took me 50 years to find out the answer to what happened, what I saw that night. What I saw that night was Pearl Harbor lit up again. And you could see that something was going on that we didn't know. Mm-hmm. And what it took me 50 years to find out was kind of like I, I met Colonel Darling. I am on a panel and I'm sitting next to a Navy pilot, the only one that survived friendly fire that night over Pearl Harbor. We shot and we they tried to shoot him down to thinking not, and some knew, some didn't know, these were six pilots off the Enterprise that could not land. The aircraft carrier deck was too dark. Didn't know where the Japanese fleet was. We can't light the deck for you. So go to Pearl Harbor. I'll tell them you're coming. Well, the tower gets the radio message, but everyone who has a gun is sitting there and you hear airplanes coming in. You start firing. You don't wait to see what country they belong to. So it was friendly fire that we thought was a Japanese invasion. And one of the aircraft landed just a block from our house, and we'd go over and look at it. And, of course, it burned completely, and we all thought it was that we had shot down a Japanese airplane, not knowing that we were looking at friendly fire. Yeah, you would have thought that, I would think. That's an incredible story, Dorinda. Do you remember any of the smells associated with that day from all the burning fuel and everything? And it burned and it burned and it burned. Uh, But yes, the smells and just the the feeling in the air, certainly as we left. And then when we came back, there there weren't the noises anymore. But the fire for a long time. And, you know, I sure remember the 9-11 fires for a long time. Yeah, yeah, we're going to talk about that. And that's uh, actually a, a good segue from December 7th, 1941. We're going to fast forward about 60 years to September 11th, 2001. And Bob, I'd like you to tell us a little bit about your background and how did you end up inside the president's bunker on September 11th, 2001? Well, thank you, James. And Dorinda, that was fascinating. So thank you for giving us uh, that background. So happy to be with you again today on this podcast. But uh, I was an active duty Marine. I flew attack helicopters in the Marine Corps. And in 1998, I was selected to fly President Bill Clinton around in Marine Helicopter Squadron 1, HMX-1. It's the green, shiny green and white helicopters that you see on TV that take the president worldwide. I did that for two years. In October of 2000, I was asked to be a part of the White House military office. Our job, airlift operations, is to move equipment around in support of the president. Helicopters, limousines, snipers, doctors, phones, whatever the president needs to execute his agenda as commander-in-chief and leader of the free world and president of the United States, we make sure all that equipment gets there. September 11th, 2001, I was the airlift operations officer responsible for the logistics package that went to Sarasota, Florida. So the minute 
the world changed and the towers were burning, the Pentagon was struck. We evacuated the White House for the second time in history, the first time being the War of 1812. And now here we are again. And I was asked to go into the bunker complex deep under the White House to do logistics in support of the President of the United States as they moved him from Sarasota, Florida to someplace out west. And now that assignment that you thought you were going to be following through with changed, didn't it, Bob? The minute you get down into the bunker complex, there's a lot of military officers that run that complex. They're doing their jobs. And as soon as I walked in there and I had my briefcase and my planning kit to support the president, the vice president of the United States, his military aide was a good friend of mine. Major Sharpie and I, you know, we correspond daily. And he said, Bob, listen, forget the president's logistics for a moment. I need your help. Answer the phones. They're ringing off the hook. So I turned and you can imagine all these military members doing their job, answering phones, taking notes. I can see an empty desk, an empty cubicle. And as I walked over towards it, I could hear the phone ringing. So naturally I ran over there seven minutes after the White House was ordered to evacuate at 9.45. It's now 9.52 when I picked up the phone call and it was a direct line to the upstairs White House situation room. Yeah, and then what happened there? What was the next set of events? So the gentleman in the situation room said, Major, we have another hijacked aircraft 16 miles south of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, inbound Washington, D.C. So through all the chaos, try to imagine covering the phone, spinning to the spinning as fast you can to the right to tell the military aide about this new hijacked aircraft and standing inches away from me was Vice President Cheney. Behind him was his wife, Lynn, Dr. Rice, our national security advisor, her deputy, and Norman Mineta, our secretary of transportation. Every executive who was upstairs in the West Wing was now evacuated downstairs into the bunker complex, coming over to my phone to hear about this new hijacked aircraft that was inbound. I can only imagine the adrenaline level in you at that time and thinking in effect that there's a plane potentially headed for the Capitol, the White House, uh, other, other targets in Washington, D.C. And you were right there with the government in Washington at that time, key figures in government. How did you feel at that time? What was going through your mind? Well, immediately under in crisis or under duress, our military training says to compartmentalize. Whatever it is you're assigned to do, whatever's going around, uh, happening around you, tune it out. Do your job. Do the immediate task at hand. And the immediate task at hand for me was to tell the vice president about this new incoming aircraft. I snapped to, I said, Mr. Vice President, we have another one hijacked coming at us. He turned away from me. He immediately got hold of the FAA, the Herndon, Virginia Command Center for the FAA. They confirmed that airplane was way off course not talking to air traffic controllers and not squawking a transponder code given air traffic control, airspeed, altitude, and direction information that that was deemed a hijacked aircraft. I can only imagine what was uh, racing through your mind and the people in that bunker. So what kind of leadership did you then see demonstrated in front of you? This was a life-altering moment for me right now watching this. There's only two people in the U.S. government who can give offensive, lethal instructions to the U.S. military, and that's the President of the United States 
and our Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld at the time. Here it is, I'm telling the Vice President about a new hijacked aircraft coming towards us. We have a president in Sarasota, Florida trying to get airborne. We have a Secretary of Defense somewhere outside in the parking lot over at the Pentagon assisting with the wounded from the impact of Flight 77. When I witnessed Vice President Cheney insert himself into the military chain of command and tell the Pentagon that he wanted two F-15 fighter aircraft out of Otis Air National Guard Base in Cape Cod, let me know when they're airborne and stand by to shoot this aircraft down. In front of everyone in that bunker complex at that very moment in time, we had a real world military mission in progress. And when you think, what are the ramifications of that decision? And that is so insightful of you to say that, James, but there were no discussions of ramifications. It was a country under attack and we had another aircraft. We have three airplanes and three targets. We have another aircraft that's officially 150 ton Tomahawk cruise missile coming towards Washington, D.C. at over 500 miles an hour. It was a weapon of war the moment it was hijacked. Vice President Cheney, without hesitation, ordered the F-15s weapons free. You are cleared hot. Shoot that aircraft down. Try to imagine two F-15s at 1,200 miles per hour closing in on United Flight 93. We're waiting for the news of impact. So Vice President Cheney, in his decision, quick decision-making process, was considering the safety and security of the United States government. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, the, the a 747, the 757 aircraft is what it was, fully loaded, unfortunately, with, with Americans and terrorists bearing down on a target in Washington, D.C., and he compartmentalized and said, I need to take lives out of the sky to save more lives on the ground. It was a gut-wrenching, courageous decision that everybody rallied behind him to do everything they could to, uh, to help this get this country going forward. He put himself out there. He made the, he made the decision we all needed, you know, made at that moment in time to defend America. So when did the word come about the fate of that airline and what actually happened to that airline? At 10.03, just 15 minutes later, we heard aircraft down, aircraft down, 68 miles south of Pittsburgh, no survivors. Try to imagine everyone staring at the vice president. He's staring up at the wall of these three speaker boxes. On orders from the vice president to the U.S. military to our fighter aircraft, we thought for a brief moment in history, we just shot a civilian airliner out of the sky. He looked up, he turned around, he walked right over to me and said, Major, for the Congressional Investigation, state your full name. Not only was he courageous to make the decision, he wanted to get the historical account of what just happened absolutely correct for the investigation. He was ready and willing to take accountability for killing Americans to save Americans in that moment in time, when all the loudspeakers blared to life, the F-15s never fired, the F-15s never fired. When you talk about the greatness of America, 40 ordinary Americans out of Newark, New Jersey, boarded that plane for San Francisco, and they learned from their loved ones, like I said, three planes, three targets, we're not going to Cuba, this is not a ransom mission. They united themselves, Tom Burnett, Todd Beamer, 38 others, 
fought back. We believe they got in the cockpit, hands-on terrorists, but that plane rolled completely upside down and hit straight down in the field in Pennsylvania at over 500 miles an hour. True American heroism. Oh, absolute heroes on that flight. It's something I think any, anybody who's old enough to remember the events that rolled out that day really hold a, a special place uh, in our hearts for those people who actually confronted the terrorists. Of course, there were so many lives lost that day. Innocent people who were killed by those, uh, those awful uh, terroristic actions. But when you think in, in that one, one case, uh, we, we actually, we won. We, we got the terrorists. Uh, we, they broke into the cockpit and they commandeered the airplane. But of course, they all lost their lives, but they pretty much lost it after overcoming their abductors, the hijackers. A major turning point. The yeah. first battle against radical Islam in the United States, American citizens won the, that war, that battle, right? And then we heard reports of ferry boat captains and ordinary people in New York driving their boats from the Brooklyn side over to the Manhattan side and New Jersey side over to the Manhattan side, just to pick up random New Yorkers, random strangers to help them evacuate Manhattan Island. Shopkeepers opening up their stores to give out food and water. Everyone running back into buildings, not out of buildings to carry people down the stairs. Account after account of ordinary people doing extraordinary things to save each other. It was the true grit of America. Yeah, it, was, it was the best of America. It really, it really was. Uh, all came together and so many people worked uh, the heroic efforts to rescue people. And whenever I watch any documentaries about it, it's still there's a part of me that really aches, really aches for that, that whole time period. Anytime I even doing this interview, it's sort of bringing back some of those thoughts. But uh, what a time to be where you were. Now, did I also hear that there was a another plane that potentially could you thought may have been another terrorist commandeered plane that was heading towards Washington? Yeah, you bet. Throughout the, the fog of war, the confusion of the day, we also learned that there was another bogey aircraft. Bogey is an unidentified aircraft. If we identify it as being a bad guy, a hostile, we'll call him a bandit. If he's a friendly, he's a friendly. We had a bogey aircraft, an unidentified aircraft, eight miles out, low and fast, inbound to the White House. Naturally, we had, we had Donald Rumsfeld back in the Pentagon, Vice President Cheney in charge at the White House. They're now conversing, and we're looking for fighter aircraft. We're looking for anything over Washington, D.C. that can engage this bogey aircraft that might be hostile. And the next thing you know, Secret Service and I are counting down. Mr. Vice President, six miles, five miles, four. And he gives the Pentagon the authority to shoot down that aircraft with any fighter aircraft in the area. Anybody who can lock on to this guy, shoot him, shoot him, shoot him. We got down to two miles. He waved his hand in front of my face and said, stop counting. If the Secret Service can't deal with it on the roof, Everyone stand by for impact. When all of a sudden the loudspeakers blared to life, that's an army medevac helicopter oh. that took off out of Fort Belvoir, 10 miles to the south with doctors to go save lives at the Pentagon. Yeah, I think at Dorinda talking about the planes that were shot down at Pearl Harbor, that potentially could have been a disaster if that helicopter had been shot down uh, with those doctors on board. 
Absolutely. It would have been horrific. It would have been another tragedy on top of a tragedy. But thank God those doctors made it. They saved lives at the Pentagon. And we got everyone uh, to the hospital that needed to go to the hospital that day because of these type of heroes. What a tremendous story. And before we go back to Dorinda for her thoughts on 9-11 and how that impacted her, when did you actually start to establish contact with President Bush? Right after Flight 93, we just got past the, the near shoot down of Flight 93 and now the crash in the field in Shanksville. When the president came up on the network, it was about 10, 15, 10 minutes after that event. He was now safely airborne on Air Force One, talking to his cabinet from Air Force One and getting reports. He was getting his sea legs, if you will, to be our commander in chief from, from the sky immediately after that event involving United Flight 93. Wow. And now I know there's so much more to your story, but what time did you stagger into your house uh, after that event? How many, was it the same day? Was it two days later? When was it? It was actually 24 hours, almost to the minute the next day. And from the, from the moment the attacks happened to the moment after they had an emergency cabinet meeting, I was able to go home briefly for a few hours to get some sleep before I was ordered back to work. It was all hands on deck. There was nobody going home for a long period of time. It was get some rest and get back to work. America's going to war, and we have a lot of preparation to do in the meantime. Yeah, and you're a soldier. Thank you for that recap, Bob, of that difficult, difficult day. Dorinda, I want to ask you, after hearing Bob tell about 9-11, obviously you remember hearing about 9-11, and how did that impact you when you heard about the planes hitting the the Trade Center and also the Pentagon and being downed in the field in Pennsylvania. How did that impact you? Well, the, there's so many similarities in the first attack on America and the second attack on America. Because when the first plane hits the tower, and I'm a former flight attendant, so I thought, oh, off course pilot. And you know, I had the TV on uh, while I'm getting ready to go to work. And then we get to work and we're all kind of buzzing about, you know, what what do you think is going on? And I'm a um, licensed mental health psychotherapist and we have team meetings on Tuesday mornings. So we turn the TV on and, you know, we're discussing all our cases when the second plane goes in and then we all look at each other and it's kind of like oh oh and that change the realization so just like at Pearl Harbor you know if I had said to you the Japanese are going to bring six aircraft carriers 300 airplanes and they're going to sail 4,000 miles and we won't catch them and we will be sound asleep. You'd say oh, America couldn't be found sound asleep. And then if you would say, well, this handful of terrorists, they're going to commandeer airplanes for the White House and the Pentagon and, and all. And you say, no, that can't happen. We were caught so by surprise. The non 
thinking maybe of not knowing how to think like our enemies. So that same feeling of shock and surprise. And what happened to me later and that weekend then it rained and in in uh, New York City and it rained and it rained and the oily black smoke never stopped and of course we all had our TV on nonstop wanting to know what's happening and who and what and I actually had on my caseload a flight attendant based in Kansas City that was supposed to be on one of the United flights. And here she is with all this guilt survivor. You know, I was supposed to be on that and somebody, you know, one of my flight attendants took my spot for me mm. kind of thing. And um, when I watched the oily black smoke, all of a sudden I had this body memory. and it's I thought now what what is going on with me you know you've flown in and out of New York and you know it has it doesn't have anything to do with that and then I realized oh you've seen that kind of smoke before when you're a little girl and the source or oily black smoke is fuel. A full airplane is full that has just taken off. It is loaded with high-octane fuel. You hit battleships that are loaded with high-octane fuel that burn. Pearl Harbor burned and burned and burned. And 9-11 burned and burned and then I thought and you know battleship isn't as high as a skyscraper for sure but it's the same composition in a way that you have fire on one floor and that's the floor that burns and then it moves to another floor and then it moves to another floor and then to another floor much the same way as in a building. Mm. And also the daughter of one of my very, very good high school friends was a chef up in the, um, in the restaurant working that morning early. So just kind of really struck me harder than I expected. And then there's something else that I only realized on February the 19th of this year. Mm. February the 19th, FDR's 9066 order. All the posters go up. Those of Japanese ancestry will report. And, you know, so when I'm doing this National Geographic assignment, I, of course, include a Japanese internment prisoner, so to speak, for almost four years, three years for sure. And then I realized, you know, what my Japanese classmates went through and my Chinese classmates, except we we were different in Hawaii than 
than California and, and the West Coast. But the discrimination then that they went through, I'm thinking of the Muslims and then the ban that we wanted to do on Muslims and how so many parts of war we don't even think about until there's a connection. And, and on the 80th anniversary of putting 130,000 Americans in prison camp, uh, war is, is hell. It's what one of my uh, interviewees said to me, it's not glamorous and I'm not a hero. And what I have found, and, I, and even Ukraine right now, one of my classmates emailed me the other morning and she says, does this feel to you like being a little kid back in wartime and wondering what's going to happen? And, and of course, we were fine. We're not like the Ukrainians. But what I found out that hits me over and over and over again, and I will say it if I ever get a chance, that the power of greed for wanting other countries, the ones that get hurt are the civilians and the children, and we don't tell their stories. And so now that I'm retired from community mental health, I'm writing these stories and I want to give them a voice. Those, I mean, we're so appreciative of those on the front lines. All the millions behind the front lines uh, that have been killed, especially millions and millions through World War II. I want to remember the stories of the civilians and the women and the children. Thank you for saying that, Dorinda. Yeah, there are so many people impacted. Terrible toll on civilian populations. So thank you for being willing to take on that project. Bob, I want to switch over to you right now to get your thoughts about what Dorinda said about Pearl Harbor, what you know about Pearl Harbor, and how you relate that to your experience on 9-11. Yeah, uh, very powerful. Dorinda, sort of like you, but different. I had a different sense in the sense where you smelled it, you saw it, and you smelled it. I remember when we told the president that we had 40,000 dead Americans in the city of New York uh, during the collapse of the South Tower. And then the North Tower came down at 1028. So I still get chills every time I tell this story and I say 40,000 dead because I remember the moment we told the leader of the free world that we lost the same amount of people that I had in the town when I grew up. And it was just a horrific number. Now, thank God it didn't turn out to be that number, but I'll never forget that moment the way you'll never forget that smell. So it kind of equated back to, to our senses, at least for me, for that. Thank you, Bob. Thanks for, for sharing that. About the same number were killed at Pearl Harbor and New York, and yet it took hundreds of ammunition and pilots and submarines and aircraft carriers and uh, lots and lots and lots of practice. and. And 9-11 was how many people, how many 
do you say are responsible for the deaths on 9-11? Well, we had 19 hijackers and ultimately we had 2,976 fatalities as a result of that. Very few wounded. Uh, everybody was just a fatality. And seven buildings in the World Trade Center collapsed. Probably all seven were damaged and five collapsed overall. So yeah, it was, it was pretty horrific. So 19 then, as opposed to uh, a whole nation. And, you know, preparing for us talking today, I, I'm just thinking how this has happened over and over again. We conquer and we conquer. And, you know, even Hawaii got conquered. And we are constantly looking for, I guess, gee, that country looks pretty. I want it. And uh, it, it seems you hope that it's going to stop, but I'm wondering if it, if it ever will, that thirst for greed and for power. It's been with us, Dorinda, for thousands of years. We can go back in history. And unfortunately, oh, yes. seems seems Always. never, never going away. There's just a, another dictator or madman at the helm, uh, and it'll continue until you know, the world ends. As a student of history, uh, I've seen, you know, one goes away, another one pops up, it seems. You know, I love this interaction between the two of you because these two events, we, I think the United States just all of a sudden felt so vulnerable in both cases. Uh, and yet yeah. the tremendous heroics and the, the nation pulled together. Now, prior to Pearl Harbor, I know Churchill was really chomping at the bit to get the United States to, to jump in. They were sort of fighting Adolf Hitler alone in Europe at that point, pretty much. The bombing of Pearl Harbor made that happen because the United States was very much isolationist prior to that event because yeah. of World War I and, and what that cost us in lives and all sorts of things. So, Dorinda, I want to ask you this question. How was your life impacted by your experiences I know you've talked about it somewhat already. You talked about writing about the experiences of children during the war, but how has your life been impacted by your experience on December 7th, 1941 and the types of things that you're involved in doing today? For the longest time, I didn't realize the story that I carried. Although there's not a December 7th, and I'm sure it's the same for 9-11 for Robert and many others, but there's not a December 7th that I'm just, you know, my mind and thoughts are back at that time in history. And so when I go back to even that part of the harbor, which is now all military, they, the Navy condemned our, our house. And, um, so I go back there and I see kids riding their bicycles and I think you have no idea what happened along these waters. And so I think it takes anniversaries for us to pay attention, kind of like it was the 80th for Executive Order 9066, or I wouldn't be thinking about that particular time in history and the 80th for Pearl Harbor. And so I, I go back for every anniversary. 
And so at the 25th, I wrote a story for, I, I live in the Kansas City area, for our Kansas City Star newspaper about what I remembered. And, and I was so glad that I did and that I asked mom and dad to write what they remember and please send me pictures. So it got put in the newspaper and I folded that up for 25 years. And at the 50th, realized that I have a story to tell. And so I went to Pearl Harbor and uh, told my story and the Arizona Memorial asked if I would write it and they would publish it. And and when I would tell some of my stories, especially about the night the war ended, uh, the audience, uh, most of them cried. And I thought, okay, I better get this written. So that's led me to that book. And then I, what was such enjoyment, for lack of a better word, is Veterans then started coming to me like I was the little kid still. And it's kind of be nice at my advanced age to be thought of as a little kid. But most of those veterans are now 100 and very few of them are are left anymore. But I started collecting their stories and then made friends with a Japanese dive bomber pilot and was even a guest in his home. And then I got an email from a TV producer in the Czech Republic saying, thank you for writing your story. He says, we don't see kids' stories. And I was especially interested in Pearl Harbor, and and I found your story. Would you come to the Czech Republic? I want to establish a Pearl Harbor Museum. And I said, will I ever? And there is one. You send me two tickets and I'm coming. So Larry and I go, and they have an interpreter that meets us, takes us to the American embassy where I speak, takes us all over, and then we go to the uh, where the dedication will be of the Pearl Harbor Museum. They're waiting for the cardinal to arrive, and the cardinal arrives, And then the Cardinal and I are standing on the stage. People bring me presents. And I I can understand the Cardinal is there to bless. Mm -hmm. But in reality, I'm a Kansas City hula dancer. You know, I'm not. (laughs) Anyway, so I finally said, you know, I'm just overwhelmed. You're treating me like I'm one one of you. And someone said to me that in 1939, when World War II started and the Nazis came over the border into Czechoslovakia, they moved into all their homes and they burned their villages. And the village that I was in right now was saved because they grew plums and those plums were made into wine for the Nazi soldiers and then when they went to school they weren't allowed to speak their language and they felt that they weren't going to survive and Britain wasn't going to be strong enough to save them and so on December the 7th 1941 when 
December the 7th happened, and on December the 8th joined the war, we had hope, and we look at you as the face of hope, uh-huh. and we're printing your story in Czech so that it can go into all of the Czech schools. Oh, that's a beautiful story, Dorinda. It really is. You must, you must have been, that, talk about being impacted. Oh, I, you know, I, it's a good thing I would never be and haven't gotten to be a movie star or somebody <laughs> famous because I ate that up and they sent me to a spa and, <laughs> and then I came home the next week and I thought, hey guys, don't you hear in Raytown know what I just did? And <laughs> no. <laughs> so, so Dorinda, you've authored a couple of books, uh, Pearl Harbor Child and yeah, also and Pearl Harbor Warriors. It was the story of a bugler off the West Virginia that ends up being sunk uh, the morning of the 7th by six torpedoes and a Japanese dive bomber pilot. And it takes a long time, uh, 50, 55 years for the American to get over hating mm-hmm. the Japanese and all what he went through and then he realized he had to forgive if he wanted to live. Hmm. And so it's the story of moving from hatred to forgiveness. And then a Japanese dive bomber pilot who wanted forgiveness of America because he said when he flew in, nobody shot back at him and his country had told him that we were going in, but we would give the U.S. notice, but that notice didn't get through in time. It didn't get translated in time. And he says, I'm a warrior. I don't go in and fight against someone who's defenseless. And and then we even put him in prison in Guam for 15 months, and he still felt he had to apologize to America. And Larry and I got to stay in his home on a trip to Japan and he comes in, knocks on the door and nods to us. And then he goes over to his dresser and says his evening prayers, much like he might have at three o'clock in the morning on the Akagi of the 7th of December and then pulls the door closed. And Larry and I just look at each other and I, I said, what are the chances of sleeping in the bed of a pilot that flew over my house, attacked us, we go to war, millions are killed, and now we're his house guest. Mm. So to me, the biggest weapon and uh, what peace can bring is, is not the sword, it's the pen. The pen, the writing, the writing 9-11, writing December 7th. We're going to be writing, unfortunately, Ukraine. That's coming on down. At the 60th anniversary, I headed back to Pearl Harbor, and flights weren't quite going back again. And so there was Waikiki Beach all empty. And anyway, so I'm at the 60th getting ready to speak. And I see a bunch of people running and I thought, oh my gosh, what is happening? It was a good thing. J 
just that very weekend, the hotels, the car rentals, and the airlines provided free trips to Hawaii for first responders, and they had just arrived at the ceremony, and people were running to greet them. Oh, that's beautiful. That's Now, Dorinda, that was only about three months after the 9-11 attacks? It was. And gosh, we just loved Donham and Bobby should have been there too. Now, Dorinda, you speak about your experiences as a Pearl Harbor child. Do I also understand that a American doll was named after you? Yes. So an American girl doll calls, people can't believe I said this, but I said, what's an American girl doll? Well, I have since heard that a big deal. And they said they do history dolls and they'd done the civil war and they'd done some other, and they wanted to do a Pearl Harbor doll and they had come across my book. And I said, can I write it? And they said, no, we want your story, but we want one of those famous authors to write it. Really? So, So, her name is Nanea, and that's been fun. I bet. I did want to ask, Dorinda, do you have a, a website that uh, you can tell us, our listeners, so people can see what you're up to, maybe where you're speaking, and maybe some ways they can get a hold of your books? A Pearl Harbor Child will get me. And, uh, you know, send me your questions or invite me to come to your school, which I would love and I am working on this this pandemic, you know, a war of sorts. Certainly people have died by the thousands. And the one, you know, we looked for the good in, in the other wars. Because of the time I grew up in Hawaii, I was mentioning that the Czechoslovakian children were not allowed then during the time Hitler invaded to speak their language in schools. When my mother was in school, uh, she was not allowed to speak Hawaiian. And so when my mother marries my father, who's from Missouri, we aren't going to speak Hawaiian at home. We don't teach it in school. We all want to be so American. So I never learned my language. I did get to learn the hula because, and I might not have, except my mother was a hula teacher. But we only did the dances that were, I'm going to a hukilau, huki, 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 or it's not the island stair that's calling to me. It's a little brown gal. We learned those kinds of songs all in English. And so now during the pandemic, I, on Mondays, do hula on Zoom. Wednesday nights, I learn my native language. And on Thursday mornings, I learn to chant in my native language. Really? So this is all coming out of the pandemic. pandemic. It's interesting because this podcast has sort of come out of the pandemic. My wife and I started this uh, in the summer of 2020. Again, something good can come out of something bad, but that's that's amazing. So is it pearlharborchild.com or what, what's the actual website, Dorinda? www.pearlharborchild.com. Perfect. 
And my email, you know, I'm willing to give that as my first name, Dorinda at PearlHarborChild.com. Well, that's good. And I hope that anybody who's interested in finding out what Dorinda's up to and the interesting story she has to tell in her books, please reach out or check out her website. Now, I want to go to Bob. Bob, so how has your life been impacted by your experiences on 9-11 and as far as what you're doing now and, and how it's impacted your life? It's, uh, it's really true that it did impact my life. The problems that we had on 9-11 at the national command level stemmed really around communication, a breakdown in organizational structure and communication. As a result of that experience, I went off to Naval Postgrad School, got my MBA back to the Pentagon and served my last four years working for the Chief of Naval Operations. But when I retired in 2007, I was committed to building resilience in America. My mission is to take every small to mid-sized company and help them be better prepared to handle crisis as a result of what I saw and learned on 9-11. I am now the owner of Turning Point Crisis Management USA. I go give keynotes on crisis leadership and decision-making. We do tabletop exercises. We write business continuity plans, and we have an app out called Flash, which lets organizations emergency-type communicate between themselves in an encrypted environment. Our goal is to let everybody learn how to recognize, react, respond, communicate, recover, and uh, keep their organization safe moving forward. America needs it. It's a grassroots level. So we don't have another Pearl Harbor or another 9-11 and people running in chaos for a long period of time. We want to grow it from within so we can help our leaders when they're trying to help us. Bob, that's fantastic. Can't imagine that companies wouldn't hugely benefit from that type of training. You saw leadership being demonstrated at one of the most critical times in our American history. You were right there. You saw it demonstrated and you've had a chance to think about it and you've got a real passion for leadership and making a difference. So what is the actual website to contact you, Bob? Sure. You can find me at robertjdarling.com. And you can find my company at TPCM for Turning Point Crisis Management, tpcmusa.com. I also wanted to mention your book. It's 24 Hours Inside the President's Bunker, 9-11-01, The White House. It is a fantastic, riveting book, a very detailed account of your experience on 9-11. It offers new insight and I really appreciate you doing that. So I recommend anybody to go out and pick up a copy of, of that book. Thanks, James. And, and I'd just like to say uh, one thing to Dorinda. You know, Dorinda, James was going to ask me a tough question to ask you. And, and I really more, I have pretty much a statement. I just always wanted to tell you, and I'm, I'm going to take this opportunity to tell you on the podcast. There is a Dorinda out there right now. There's a six-year-old girl who's just been evacuated out of Ukraine. She may be in Poland now or, or some other European country. And I almost wish that you could go back, find this six-year-old and do the Vulcan mind melt and, and tell her everything that you've learned since Pearl Harbor at six to this young Ukrainian girl at six 
and give her the advice of a lifetime. I was wondering, what is it you would tell her? I would tell her to do the same thing that I did. And you're not supposed to make your auntie cry. Um, <laughs> um, but I went back to school and I didn't finish my undergrad until I was almost 50. And I got to go to college with my oldest son. And it was fun to watch the girls flirt with him. What guy would have his mom in? class with him, but it took me a long, long time to become a marriage and family therapist. Part of this was I survived the, what, the sabotage and the submarine battles or whatever, Pearl Harbor, but I don't know that I survived the battles of my mom and my dad. And uh, so I did do a master's and then I did a post-master's degree in, in counseling psychology. And I worked in the inner city until I was 75. And I thought, well, I really don't want to retire, but I better if I'm going to get anything else done with Hubby Larry and write more books. So I would tell that Ukrainian girl to um, to use her life for service, but she also needs to get that education because that's going to open doors for her. You have got to be that woman that God designed you to be, and then you'll attract the right kind of man, or you may not. But don't expect someone else to do it for you. You know, we get to uh, travel around, Dorinda, you and I both. And people come up and ask me, I'm sharing this with James, about the greatest generation. You know, all those veterans from World War II were losing them by the truckloads every single year. And when I listen to you speak and I hear about all of you've done to travel the world to touch lives, yeah, you are the epitome of the world's greatest generation. So thank you. Oh, uh, you're much. <laughs> I agree. No, this is the third time you made me cry. I can't wait to see you in mm -hmm. April. I have I got ideas for you because I'm a volunteer, a mental health volunteer for Red Cross. And I just accepted a national Red Cross position to help with their veterans programs. And so I told them April is the month of the military child. And I want us to do something about resilience for military kids. And not just really military kids, but because that's where my volunteer has put me in the veterans programs. But I can't wait to talk to you about a program like yours for kids. I wanted to just say, you mentioned the Cherry Blossom Festival. I was going to mention that at the end of April of 2022, it's an annual event. It's a, it's an amazing event. It's called the Cherry Blossom Festival. It's in Marshfield. I can't speak. <laughs> <laughs> this will make the bloopers version. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, outtake. It, it's been too. It's been too serious a conversation. Just say it's in Trenton, New Jersey. Something easy for you. <laughs> it's called the Cherry Blossom Festival. It's in Marshfield, Missouri, and it's at the end of April. You can go and Google it. It's a, an amazing event. There's people of all sorts of people. There's presidential descendants. There's people from the movies. There's music people from the music industry. And there's military people. There's just amazing folks just like Bob and Dorinda telling their stories. And I understand that the two of you will be appearing, I believe, in a panel to have a discussion face-to-face -face like you're having now on this podcast. So I urge everybody to get out there to Marshfield, Missouri, and watch you guys in person and listen to what you have to say, because these are very important things to know, to understand our nation's history, the great people that have really been at the front lines of these two tragic events and have led and have really served as great examples for our current young people and old people alike. So I want to thank you both, but I, I want to finish by asking Dorinda, do you have any questions you'd like to ask Bob? I wondered, what was it like to be in the bunker with all these strong personalities? Was there kind of, um, you know, when you put crabs in a pot, one is always trying to get up and further. And I just wondered if, if you saw or felt any of that, or if it was directly no question. The alpha, the alpha in the bunker was none other than Dr. Condoleezza Rice. She was the boss. And let me tell you why she stood out as being the alpha. She could have, as National Security Advisor, come down there and started demanding for the military members that to report to her, she'll report to the vice president and so on. She humbled herself. She stood behind us. She asked us, do you need water? Do you need food? Or do, oh my you, need, do you need to help me get you in touch with the president of the United States? She was oh completely goodness. professional, humble, and at our service. She epitomizes what true leadership is. And I always oh tell my, my friends, if Dr. Rice ever said she was running for president, I would be the first one to get on the bus because this oh is, my she has the kind of leadership our nation needs now more than ever before. But she was awesome. Oh, thank you. Only you could share that. Thank you for sharing that. That's great. That's some real insight into, into that bunker. Again, thanks for that question, Dorinda. I want to thank you both for taking the time to share these two incredible stories that you both have. And I know so many others can benefit from hearing it, whether it be on this podcast or at the Cherry Blossom Festival or places where you appear together again in the future. So I'm going to be following both of you and the two of you, uh, you, your tops. And thank you so much. And I hope you both have a really good rest of what's left of this winter and that uh, this year brings you both many blessings and successes in what you both do. Well, thank you for that. And to you and your, your bride for working together as a team to 
make programs like this possible. And for those who are listening, there is no cost to attend this festival and it runs over several days, but Robert and I will be on the Saturday panel, but there are other events the day before and, uh, you know, hope to see you there. At the Cherry Blossom Festival. That's great. Well, thank you, James. Thank you, Kelly, for, for this opportunity. Very good. So I hope you both have a great day and we'll be talking to you soon. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Your History, Your Story. You can connect with us on Facebook and YouTube at Your History, Your Story, or on Instagram and Twitter at YHYS Podcast. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, or a story to tell. Be well and God bless.